Are you the quantum mechanics? Yes, we're the quantum mechanics. We're the paranormal podcast for the believers, the doubters and everyone in between. It's Christmas. <laughs> oh, by the time you hear this... It'll be over, won't it? Partly it'll over. be over. I'll be covered in gravy. Yep, yep. I'll be covered in gravy too. I'll be asleep on the sofa, <laughs> probably, while you're listening to this snoring. Yeah, you're you're listening to us record this on the day before Christmas Eve, Christmas Eve Eve, if you will. And just because there are postal strikes and everything, there's the renewed panic of every middle-aged man. I thought I'd got all the presents and then a bunch haven't turned up because of deliveries and stuff. So I had to go out and do replacement. Trying to think of two Christmas presents for the same person that you thought you'd already thought of one for. Oh, good Lord. I, I don't know if you've had this as well, but we've I've had the odds, because I've been doing a lot of pre-cooking because I thought that was a good idea. I've had the odd panic. <laughs> I had one this morning. I was like, oh my God, I haven't got a red onion. I've got to go out and get a red <laughs> onion. <laughs> did you get one? Yeah, I did. <laughs> Oh, that's good. That's good. Well, Christmas Day is obviously past, and now Boxing Day is that weird sort of, I don't know, it's like a hiatus where I guess the law is you can eat as much cheese as you want and you can have wine for breakfast. But he's sort of, you know what I mean? Like the day after that, the Christmas tree starts looking a bit like, well, what are you doing here then? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It starts... You, you're, you're realising there is a nice laid carpet of uh, little pines on the floor. Are they called pines? I think they are, aren't they? Yeah, needles, I guess. Needles, that's the one. And then, yeah, there's all bits of sellotape stuck to your socks. I, I kind of remember that. Oh, uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. And kind of lots of half-eaten food that you don't know what to do with. Yeah, just eat it. Yeah, well, that's generally the plan. <laughs> well, I thought, as we were going to talk all things Christmassy, perhaps this is a good way of getting the magic alive for one more night, because I'm going to talk about paranormal things that happen on Christmas Day. Maybe you've experienced some of them. Maybe because you're in a time zone, it is still Christmas Day. Is that possible? It is possible, I suppose. And I thought... Um, if you're in a time slip, it's possible. If you're in a time <laughs> slip, that's right, yeah. Um, and as I am not in any way a trained performer, I wanted to start with this very short little poem which will get us in. And maybe you can see what I'm talking about because this is, this is a great thing, um, a great legend which is supposed to happen on Christmas Day. And this is... I. I I really like this. It's written by Stephen Grundy, who's a US folklorist. And it goes like this. When the winter winds blow and the Yule fires are lit, it is best to stay indoors, safely shut away from the dark paths and the wild heaths. Those who wander out by themselves during the Yule nights may hear a sudden rustling through the tops of the trees, a rustling that might be the wind, though the rest of the wood is still. But then the barking of dogs fills the air, and the host of wild souls sweeps down, fire flashing from the eyes of the black hounds and the hooves of the black horses. Now, is that familiar? Do you know what he's talking about? I don't know, but it's, it's pretty good, that. I like that. I kind of... 
He's had a bad Christmas and he's definitely eaten too much cheese. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> it's just, it's a stilted nightmare. Yeah, yeah. No, it's the wild hunt. It's the wild ah. hunt, which is supposed to fly through the air. Well, it's kind of been Christianized in some way. Right. That it, the, the thought is that it happens on Christmas Day night, but it hasn't always been that way. And having a look around, I've found um, uh, a reference to it from Anglo-Saxon history, uh, 1127 AD. And then there's been lots of other books written about it, and it appears in Lapland and Sami Law. And basically the idea of it is that there is this huge ghostly hunt going on in the sky. Wow. I have and this, yeah. Uh, and depending on whereabouts you pick up the legend from, whether it's medieval or early modern period or modern period, you will find different, um, I guess, leaders of the hunt. So Odin is particularly famous. Um, in Other people have put other... Whoever is um, particularly relevant to their religion, they have put them at the front of it. And... There's various sort of ideas that this came around via, like perhaps it uh, evolves from people telling stories about the Northern Lights, for example. Right, that makes but sense. But the reason I mentioned it is not just because of the fact that it happens on Christmas night, but there's a, f I mean, you don't have to dig too deep to find this out, but um, the Wild Hunt might have influenced the development of Sinterklaas, which is the Dutch Christmas figure, which then turned into Santa Claus. So there is a connection between the Wild Hunt and right. the development of Santa Claus. And I guess that's where you get the kind of reindeer and sleigh in the sky. I can see why that imagery might lean, lean its, lend itself to that. Yes, although I'm going to give you another theory on that at the end, but yes, absolutely okay. th there is. And... Um, I guess a lot of people would know about the wild hunt through um, Jacob Grimm, who really put it into sort of the modern, uh, I guess the modern thought of, of what it's all about and added some Christian elements. So um, in latter days, and we're talking sort of the 18th century, people began to f sort of um, theorise is the wrong word, but say that the hunt was out to gather the spirits of those who had misbehaved and that's that theory um or that idea that we spoke about last time about like the krampus coming and taking children away there's a whole load of stuff at christmas where people come and take things away <laughs> usually <Right>. your soul um <laughs> Also, whilst I was going in there, because I was trying to get, get us into some of these stories by talking about jolly things about Santa, and then I discovered something that I didn't know about Santa. I did know that he was inspired by the 4th century Greek bishop who was called St. Nicholas. I guess we would all know that. I didn't realise that you could actually go to the tomb of Santa Claus or St. Nick because um, his remains are in the Basilica of St. Nicholas in Bari in Italy. And wow. um, uh, not only that, but there's some radiocarbon dating which proves that those remains do come from the period he lived in. So um, That's going to be a hard one to unpick with an inquisitive eight-year-old at your side, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's Santa in, in there. <laughs> but 
Um, but he's also a patron saint of something else. Were you aware that he was the patron saint of prostitutes? I had no idea. Well, he's got to have something to do the rest of the year, hasn't he? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is where some of the legend comes from. So the story goes that he comes to the aid of a poor man who couldn't afford the dowry for his three daughters. And if these daughters were to remain unmarried, they would likely end up in prostitution. And right. so St. Nick hears about the the plight and what's going on. And when the first daughter comes of age, don't really know what that really means. And it's a bit creepy the way he puts that. But mm. to avoid... Um, putting on a public display and sort of being all, I do a lot of work for charity. He goes to the house under the cover of night and throws a purse filled with gold through a window for the family to discover the next morning. Other versions of that story have St. Nick doing that three times for the three daughters. And one of the legends that I really like about this is, because all the stories are slightly different, but the father tries to work out who's been dropping the gold in because he's obviously, he realises, right, third daughter's come of age. If I stay up all night, I can see what's going on. So St. Nick, knowing that he's going to get found out, climbs up onto the roof and drops the third bag down the chimney. And just to complete the legend, his daughter has been washing her stockings that evening and has put them over the embers to dry and the bag of gold falls into one of the stockings. That wow. is, it's an apocryphal legend. It probably isn't true, but I like, I like I the like, idea I, of it. I like that a lot. That's really good. And it's got yeah. all the bits in there, hasn't it, about, you know, don't, don't look out for him. You don't want to see him. That's it's right. He's got the rooftop. He needs a way of getting on the rooftop. Yeah. Yes. Wow. Uh, I think the laws of physics might have to be somewhat adjusted to get a gold purse dropped down a chimney to land in some stockings that are hanging by it. But look, let's, we'll put let's that aside. It. Yeah, let's go with that. Um, wow, that's amazing. So, oh, what a lovely man St. Nicholas was, saving everyone, dropping he gold He is a lovely coins. man, but at the same time, he's hanging around, he's creeping on these three daughters going, yeah, yeah, she's come of age. And I like the fact that the father managed to pinpoint it to one specific night. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, what are we doing? Monday, yeah, we've got sports practice. Tuesday, daughter three comes of age. Oh, yeah, right, okay, I've got to wait up all night, yeah. Got to wait up for the gold. Got to wait up for the gold. I will come to, because of this is the, the aim of our podcast, I've got a more scientific explanation for where this comes from at the end, but I'm not going to pop the Christmas um, bauble. Yeah, that, I've mixed metaphors. I'm not going I'm to... I'm so glad you didn't say cherry. <laughs> I've, I stopped myself because that would have been highly inappropriate. Yeah, exactly. So, so there we've we've got we got some we got some um, hunt. We've got some Santa Claus, and I'll come to some Santa Claus sightings at the end. But the other thing that sets out Christmas for, I guess, probably those of us who come from the UK, is not just ghost stories, but ghost stories that happen in grand halls. I guess it's almost, again, a Dickensian thing. So when you tell a ghost story, you want it to happen in some big grand building, don't you? Somewhere where aristocracy live. I, I, I've often wondered, because, you know, 
I've said on the podcast before, Christmas Carol, my ultimate all-time favourite Christmas tale. And it kind of, like, I think you mentioned it last week, that Charles Dickens did kind of, in a way, kind of define especially that paranormal element to Christmas. I wondered if it's a bit like, you know, when My Bloody Valentine were hugely successful and then you had all these shoegazer bands who came afterwards. (laughs) Do you think all these other ghost stories stem from the, the My Bloody Valentine album, which was A Christmas Carol? Well... Uh, that isn't a thread I had pulled on, but you might be right. <laughs> <laughs> you might be right. But whilst I was looking, what I was trying to do was to create myself the ultimate segue and find a big British hall where a ghost story takes part, place in and combine it with a wild hunt. And I found one. Oh. And I found a wonderful compendium of stories by an author which doesn't seem well known, MJ Wayland. Um, nope. And he he or she, I think it's a he, put together uh, a compendium of 30 real Christmas ghost stories. And he's, some of them, <laughs> I'll be honest, if you're listening, Mr. Mr. Wayland or Mrs. Wayland, some of them are rubbish. <laughs> like, there, there's one genuinely which is, uh, in the Tower of London, sometimes people see a ghost soldier, and that's basically what all they say. I'm like, no, I'm not, not doing that one. But this one, this one I really like. So I picked out two to tell you from this book, and I think these epitomise Christmas in the UK. So whilst you're clearing up those sprouts and hopefully making bubble and squeak, have a listen. They're quite short. They won't bore you. They're interesting. As I've said, across Britain, there are numerous tales of this ghostly wild hunt setting out on Christmas Eve and continuing over to Christmas Day. And this is what I was talking about before. Searching the countryside for poor souls to take depends on your religion. And uh, this is the author speaking now. This following story could be classed as one such wild hunt story, but with one resounding difference. It is factual. It concerns Colonel Sidley and his activities at Ranworth Hall, Norfolk, on Christmas Eve, 1770. If you want to do a multimedia presentation of this, now you should Google Ranworth Hall. You'll find it on... um, uh, You'll find pictures of it. You can now go and stay there if you want. Mm. Some people still swear that the galloping hooves of his great mare, Black Jezebel, can be heard. Don't Google that. (laughs) Thundering across the windswept countryside on Christmas Eve. Others reckon that they have heard the mare plunge into the water of the nearby broad. Colonel Sidley was a wild man with a passion for wine, women and hunting. The people of Ranworth feared him for being cruel and bitter in his dealings with them, and he had the reputation of being possessed with a devil, or even being the devil himself. And as an aside, I did have a look around. There is quite a lot of local legend about him being um, possessed, or even being a demonic entity in his own right. You wouldn't kind of go for if someone said where does the devil live Norfolk Norfolk. would not be my first choice (laughs) (laughs) no but Ranworth Hall is quite grand I'm going to google while you're talking well the reason that people suspected this it wasn't just his actions it was his peculiar appearance he wore dark somber clothes his hair was jet black and his dark eyes glinted evilly I guess that's subjective 
He remained booted and spurred at all times, ready to ride Black Jezebel at a moment's notice, always at the gallop. He would call out his hounds at any time of the day, then ride the huge black mare like a demon. Woe betide anyone who got in his way or tried to interfere with his sport. Small wonder the country folk of Ranworth instinctively sought cover at the sound of the approach of a galloping fiend. Life at Ranworth Hall was equally hectic. Often lights from every window blazed out long into the night. On these occasions, the sounds of drunken songs, laughter, shrieks and screams echoed across the surrounding countryside. Characteristically, Colonel Sidley sent invitations to half the local gentry and a group of local blades from Norwich to ride the hounds out with him on the stroke of midnight on Christmas Eve 1770. The guests arrived to find the colonel ready to ride, but first he insisted on them finishing a bowl of punch. By the time midnight approached, few of the men were sober, and a whoop of enthusiasm broke out as Colonel Sidley rose to his feet, brandishing his riding crop, and urged the company to finish their drinks, then follow him to the stables. Before he reached the main door, a loud bang was heard upon it. Suddenly it flew open, and a solitary figure in a vol- volumi- voluminous? voluminous... I thought, I thought you were going to say in a Volvo. <laughs> in a Volvo, yes. It was one of those old estate cars. I ruined my own flow. Suddenly it flew open, and a solitary figure in a voluminous black cloak filled the doorway... The stranger wore a large black hat that concealed his features. In a harsh, commanding voice, he invited Colonel Sidley to ride with him. He also pointed to other members of the company. Flushed with drinking, the men went for their horses and the hounds burst from their kennels. A servant came forward with the colonel's cloak, but the stranger brushed him aside, saying, he will need no cloak this night. At the sight of the stranger, the the hounds suddenly turned tail and fled, howling, the sky had become heavily overcast, and peals of thunder rent the air. Halted by these strange signs, the men watched a flash of lightning zigzag across the sky. By this eerie light, they saw their host gallop off with the stranger in the, in the direction of Ranworth Broad. Suddenly, an agonising shriek pierced out above the storm, followed by a great splash of water, then a chilling momentary silence before a bell began to toll softly. Basically, what happens next is all the servants flee, going in all directions, and they leave the hall shining like as a beacon because it's been full of all these people. All the fires are burning, all the lights right. are on. And uh, Colonel Sidley does not appear. But the following morning, his solicitor arrives from Norwich, and he announced that he's had this urgent summons. When he tells of when people tell him of the colonel's departure. He is said to have turned a deathly white. He then collected all the dead men's papers and burnt the lot. It was never discovered who told the bell or who summoned the solicitor. Still, because of these mysterious happenings and the riding of the ghostly horses on Christmas Eve, Ranworth Hall remained empty for a long time. In 1984, at five, it was finally demolished, leaving only its old porch as a reminder of its terrible history. You can see pictures of it before 1985 and what you can stay in is what has been built on this old porch um and so yeah the the implication there was he the devil who told the solicitor why did he burn the papers we shall never know oh it's a mystery it's a weird thing though isn't it it's like your first thought (laughs) 
when you've encountered some supernatural entity or the entity itself says, I must let his solicitor know. <laughs> <laughs> but but the devil is quite litigious, isn't he? Because it's true. He's, you sign a, you do contract. He's big on contracts, isn't he? Contract he's big on contracts. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and actually in The Devil's Advocate, that film with um, Keanu Reeves and Al Pacino, the devil was a, he was a lawyer, wasn't he? He was a lawyer. Yes, yes. And it all he, makes he, sense. It does all make sense. And I like the fact that there are some tales. Um, the guy he um, he he exchanged his soul for um, uh, being able to play music. The famous musician. Um, oh yes, the, is that the devil came down to Georgia or whatever? That's the fiddle. Yes, the fiddle player. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, and and the devil gets him on a fine point of legal law in the contract. So I quite like the fact that he obviously employs quite a big law firm to keep up to date with the latest in, like, yeah. IP law and uh, vendor law, all that sort of thing. <laughs> I just keep thinking of those adverts. Have you been involved in a satanic incident? <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't your fault. <laughs> well, the, the, the second and last of his stories, it ends in such a... Sp- spectacularly brilliant way that I just had to tell you about it. Um, it's about the, the monks of Long Drax. So Long Drax apparently is one of the earliest religious settlements in the British Isles. There's a load of power stations now. If you, um, if you, if you Google um, Long Drax, you'll see that it's a hamlet in the middle of basically an industrialised area. But... Um, what it used to be was a settlement of religious communities. And so there was like monks and canons and something they call lay brothers. And there are significant remains buried at the Drax Priory. And these have been discovered across all of Long Drax, but mainly on the land occupied by the Drax Abbey Farm. Founded in the uh, 1130s, Drax Priory was uh, established by William Paynell on the advice of the Archbishop of York. The canons dedicated the priory to St Nicholas, Santa Claus, Mm. and William also gave a mill, a parish church, and other land to the St Augustines. Within a couple of hundred years, the priory began to struggle. The nearby River Ouse is a tidal river that often floods. Not only that, but the priory was frequently invaded by the Scots and other enemies, By 1535, during the dissolution of the monasteries, there were only 10 canons and 29 servants and boys, with the priory valued at just over £92. With a relatively short inhabitancy, why is the village so haunted by the monks? Well, this is the reason. Christmas 1922 saw a blaze of publicity when the Clark family reported that their haunted cupboard... (laughs) was situated over half a mile away from the Drax Priory ruins, Baxter Hall Farm became the scene of an intense, if not short, Christmas haunting. The haunted cupboard. So we go from monks to a haunted cupboard. Like literally a cupboard that you put your food in. Well, bear with me, because here's a... uh, The the Pall Mall Gazette reports various descriptions of its appearance are given, but it is generally agreed that it takes the form of a tall and restless shade, doubtless revisiting the scene of its former trials. So basically, 
they're saying that they're seeing a shadowy monk in there. And indeed, Mrs. Ernest Clark told reporters how she and her elder children had seen a dark form in their bedroom. One of the witnesses, Annie, who was described as a bright, intelligent girl of 16, told how she had seen the figure emerge from the cupboard, walk around her bed before vanishing through the wall. When quizzed by the journalists if she saw the shadow of the moon, Annie replied that if it was a shadow cast by the moon, it would not have travelled round the room. Sass. Backing the story was another witness, a signalman Taylor, who also saw a dark figure close to Baxter Hall Farm around two o'clock in the morning as he was passing to go to work. He turned his flash lamp in its direction where it promptly vanished. While many newspapers briefly printed the initial sighting, the Daily Mirror decided to research the story for whatever reason. I mean, Daily Mirror re- did really like to do these peculiar cases. Yeah. After discussing the matter with the villagers of Long Drax, the journalist uncovered the story of an impassable tunnel. So basically, he goes into some detail here, but there's this um, tunnel which allegedly links the Drax Priory Farm and Baxter Old Hall and every time the villagers try to pass through it with candles or uh, beacons, they get blown out, and so they just give up right. on walking through there. And that is attributed um, to the monks. Which they did have those kind of escape tunnels, didn't they? Because I think you alluded they did, to yeah. it. You alluded to it earlier, didn't you? That you know they were always being attacked, and you know forgetting religious persecution, just people trying to rob the place. So. They often had these little secret tunnels. That's interesting. Yeah. Well, by the end of it, well, not by the end of it, but by um, the conclusion of his interviews, the journalist finds out that basically he's looking for a man without a head, a black figure flapping bat-like wings, and a man hanging from a gallows, plus (laughs) a medieval woman. So all of these things are uh, are hanging around um, Drax. And the Yorkshire Post also wrote about the Christmas haunting, saying, For a good many years, ghosts have been in the air at Drax. At one time, the ghosts of the monks of the Abbey used to come at Christmas time at intervals and parade a long avenue of trees in the neighbourhood. Miss Clark, who lives at the farm, is certain that she saw a spectral figure stalk around her bedroom three nights in succession. Others talk of shadowy women, winged creatures and headless women. So that's kind of the, the summary he submitted. That's quite a good list, though, isn't it? So you've got bat-like thing, you've got headless, you've got shadow people, you've got the monk. It's it's yep. like it's like paranormal bingo. And we've kind of got two references to Christmas here. So we've got the fact that it's the building is dedicated to Saint Nicholas, and the fact that the abbey comes alive at the at the time of Christmas. But it's what happens. <laughs> it's the way that the a journalist signs this off, which I'm coming to, which is, it's so quantum mechanics. A special correspondent was dispatched to Baxter Old Hall a few days later uh, after the initial story and delivered a very unusual and condescending report. Last night, when the wind was whining down the dark lanes and the bats were in the belfry of the village church, it seemed possible to believe anything. Even the story of a local raconteur who says he has seen 50 spectres marching columns of four towards Drax Priory. The whole district is haunted. Transparent owls hoot at the children, medieval women laugh in the faces of old men, and headless spectres lounge around the hedgerows in their nightshirts. If I were more familiar with the Yorkshire dialect, 
There is doubt that I should be able to recount many more happenings. Unfortunately, I was able to understand, unable to understand a word he said, though I gathered through his manner that they were extremely funny ghost stories. <laughs> and then the final, the final bit of the report, the journalist goes to describe his night of ghost hunting, uh, spending several hours in the Baxter Hall farm waiting for the monk to appear, but heard and saw nothing. When he ventured outside, he claimed to have fallen in a ditch and then went home. <laughs> oh that sounds like a journalist who just didn't want that gig in the first place you know he really I mean? didn't want that gig he really 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 did and then when he went into that ditch i bet he was like that is it i'm off home and there was probably some bad language involved as well i would imagine yeah i like that um uh could you just sorry what were you just saying there about the ghosts Right, could you just say that again? And he just gets that thing like, I can't ask him three times. <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just gonna write a horrible report. Yeah, a bad review. Well, we've said you've got to go more than once. We if we'd have been his editor, we should have said, You have got to stay there night on night until you see something. That yeah, was really <laughs> that's tough. right. I want to see evidence of these blimmin' monks, but no. I like the imagery, though, of the legions marching. That would be something to see, wouldn't it? Ghostly it legions would. marching towards the, the the location would be incredible. It would. And you you sort of get these. Um, there's, the book is filled with reports like this, and then there's many others that you know are relatively easy to find in books on the internet of specific things having, happening on very specific days and Christmas time just happens to be one of those specific days and you sort of go you know you go back to that old is it just replaying an event that used to happen at that particular time were the monks just very excited on christmas because they mm. you know they got to eat something special and um you know i guess get out of whatever their normal routine is and do something more interesting or whether it is just the expectation and the time of the year that people start seeing these things. We don't know. But I just quite well, like that sort of... Um, as with many of these things, you sort of go back to the eyewitness and a lot of this seems to depend, in that second story, on a 16-year-old girl who sees a shadow moving around her bedroom and then uh, she gets cross when people go, did you really? Yeah. So going, yeah, all right. <laughs> <laughs> well, oh, well, God, well, you don't I'm have to believe me. I mean, if you go for the if if I put my uh, my uh, head uh, in on the shoulders of the mirror journalist who fell in the ditch, I'm sure he would say, and probably on some of the ones we covered recently, you know, what what are the things? People are a consuming enough alcohol at that time of the year, um, even way back. Um, there is this sense of kind of you know, wonder and joy around Christmas that you're not doing your usual thing. So you're out of your usual routine. So you're probably travelling around. See, you know, you're awake at times when you wouldn't be. So there's a chance you'll see things that you wouldn't see just because it's outside your routine. And, and I do wonder whether you're almost in this almost magical, you know, we've talked about disassociated states and mass hysteria, but I do wonder if it's something milder than that, that... You know, you are partly in a fantasy world and open to seeing things could be the other reason as well. Well, 
I also think, because I'm now going to bring this back to where we started with Santa, and I actually found quite a lot of people who claimed to have seen Santa. And my best explanation for that, it sounds to me a lot like tulpas. So I wonder right. whether some of these... So, for example, in the monk story, because people pass around legends, do you create the tulpa so mm. that the legend forces itself to become real? And with Father Christmas, and with so much of the population for a period of their life believing it to be true and us creating images about them and legends about it and the imagery is literally everywhere you look mm. is it possible that people really are seeing something and that something is a tulpa so we've spoken about it before but just to remind people who are listening go what's a tulpa it's basically a, a thought form that has its own uh, i guess life is wrong but it has its own sort of freedom of movement but it isn't really sentient it's just uh, an, uh, a visual realisation of something that people have put a lot of time and effort into thinking about and also you know it's interesting because a lot of the legends of Santa Claus do fit in with that Tulpa theme don't they you know certainly it's almost a cliche in movies that when people are not believing, then Santa's sleigh doesn't work. Or, you know, that's famous in Elf, right? There's that scene in yeah. um, Towards the End where they've got to try and get everyone to believe so he can get his sleigh off the ground because that's what it's powered by, belief. So that actually does fit quite nicely into a Tulpa theory. It does. It does. Well, it's funny you should mention a sleigh because out of all the... I, and I have read one a few weeks ago, but I think this sighting is slightly better. This is um, cited in Scotland in 1978, and this is a contemporary account. And um, he says, an old friend came to see me a couple of weeks ago. We'd lost touch years ago, but he managed to trace me, and he bought me a Christmas card. After a few minutes, I asked him if he remembered the Christmas Eve of about 30 years ago when we were outside our houses. We grew up next to each other. It must have been around 7.30 on a clear night when we suddenly heard a bell or bells in the distance getting closer really quickly. As we both looked up, there was the reindeer, the sleigh and Santa flying very fast and low over my house. It was brief, but we both ran to tell our families. Of course, everyone laughed, but I tell you, it was real. So when my friend turned up, I asked him if he remembered and he said, of course he did, but he won't talk about it. And that, to me, sounds like um, like lots of different people's accounts of I saw something but nobody believes me. And, you know, we've spoken in the past about how we have to be careful about uh, whether we take those eyewitnesses, uh, I guess we take it as gospel but this seemed you know this person has no reason to lie we often mm. say you know what why what are they why why are they lying well and also their reaction is is one of you would imagine somebody going i don't know what i saw and i don't really want to admit to it and even the way you kind of yeah you framed it with other people were kind of going i don't want to talk about it it 
it's not a natural that seems like a natural reaction to seeing something you can't explain because you don't want to be ridiculed and you know admit to it in some ways yeah yeah that's true that's absolutely true and i bet there's loads of people who go around who've seen things and they don't want to uh don't want to admit to it but i promised i'd bring it back to the uh the world of the science and i found this on live science have you heard about the uh explanation of santa coming from hallucinogenic mushrooms I haven't, but I'm looking forward <laughs> to hearing about that. So there is somebody who postulates that there are shamans in the Siberian Arctic regions who dropped into locals' teepee-like homes with a bag of hallucinogenic mushrooms <laughs> as presents in late December. So as the story goes, up until a few hundred years ago, practicing shamans or priests connected to the old uh, connected to the older traditions would collect and uh, they're called holy mushrooms the actual word is amanita muscaria dry them and then give them as gifts on the winter solstice and because the snow is usually blocking doors there's an opening on the roof through which people entered and exited thus the chimney story right mushrooms like gifts are found beneath pine trees and the colour of these mushrooms is it's that traditional toadstool. It's it's the red with the white right, speckling. Right, the red and the white. Exactly. That's how Christmas comes to be uh, a red and a white. Now, look, there is no, <laughs> there is no story, direct though. evidence. But, yes. I'm just, just imagining somebody coming down your chimney. That's that is that's really interesting though. I love that. That's a really nice idea. And then you get, I'm assuming that part of the world, you get reindeer in the mix as well. Mm-hmm. Well, there are other people who've expanded on that theory and said that the the reindeer eat the mushrooms, and then um, some of the the locals, the Sami, drink the urine because the <laughs> It is being processed, right? And you get a, a milder hallucinogenic effect. But some people go, "Well, that's where you get a flying reindeer from." You know, <laughs> right, I, right. this might be an over-engineered explanation, but well, I do I think mean, it's kind of interesting. Surely, if you want a milder effect, you could probably just take less rather than go for that route. It seems a bit extreme, <laughs> doesn't it? Collect but the urine. The I don't want to get really off my face. Use. Get the get the urine. <laughs> Uh, he was taking the no no um but <laughs> yeah literally so if anyone did see santa last night maybe maybe he is real maybe he's a tulpa maybe he is just the product of something that you ate which had a mild hallucinogenic <laughs> And effects on you. And Ben, there was me thinking everyone was just leaving a small glass of sherry out for Santa. It's probably reindeer piss, right? Well, that's what I'm leaving out. <laughs> Although he's got tons of it. What does he need mine yeah, for? What does he need? Maybe he hasn't got the mushrooms. <laughs> I'll I'll leave him a different sort of urine. Yeah, yeah. This I'll... is this is not how I was expecting our Christmas episode to end. <laughs> no, no, no. Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it, it, the the wild ride uh, is is something that you you might have you might have come across. The the other thing that I did have a look into, I was going to um, get us into because I'm I'm making a Yule log, 
and I was going right. to get us into um, the the whole Yule Log thing. The origins of the Yule Log, there seem to be a hundred different explanations of where the Yule Log comes from. So I'm not even going to go into that, apart from to say the chocolate ones are yummy. But it is, <laughs> I do think it is really interesting the way that like this pagan stuff yeah, uh, yeah, pagan stuff. That's that's a bit derogatory. What I mean is, elements of pagan beliefs and superstitious beliefs become part of Christmas, and nobody really questions it. I think that is yeah, yeah. fascinating because you could walk in through a you know through the front door of a church on Christmas Day and bring the vicar a Yule log, and he go, "Ah, oh, delicious, thanks." He go, "Why? What's that?" And he probably say, "Oh, it's because you know, th- th- there is actually a Christian explanation." that I read, which seems very far-fetched, although some parts of the country still indulge in this, apparently, is that it derives from the fact that um, the baby Jesus was cold in the manger, so people bought him twigs and leaves to lie on. And so this is like um, uh, an ode to that part of the Christmas story. Although, right. uh, it, you know, so some people in the uh, around parts of southern england still do gather sticks and put it in the fire rather than a whole log right. yeah but other people you know it's the tree spirit it's um it's all sorts of different um nature spirit-esque things which are coming forward in that yule log story so that's kind of interesting when you're taking it into your sponge and cream I, what I think is really interesting as well is, you know, the pagan bit's really interesting and the Viking kind of Nordic element that uh, I'd not really considered, which is silly not to consider, but, I, you know, like you you were saying about, uh, I think it was Odin, wasn't it? At, in the, yeah. In the hunt and stuff. I'd never really made that connection. That's really interesting. Yeah. So um, we, we, it's a multicultural world, is Christmas. It really is a mixture of tons of stuff, isn't it? And then, and then also the commercialization of it has now become it. You know, the Santa wearing red and Coca Cola and all that kind of stuff. It's it, it really it's quite interesting in the fact that it seems to borrow and take from a bit of everything, and we're yeah. all happy with that. You know, it's like fine, yeah, cool. Yeah, no, I I I really like it. But I suppose the thing with those ghost stories is a little bit like Christmas. It's cold and wet and shivery outside, but you come in in front of the fire and that is like the realisation that it's just a story. Unless you're near Ranworth Hall and you come across Colonel Sidley riding Black Jezebel into the lake. In which case, lawyer. that's real. And his lawyer, and his lawyer. with a contract in his <laughs> yeah. hand. Go, oh, he signed this first. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Wow, that was fantastic, Ben. That's that. That's um, that's some great Christmas research. I, I wasn't expecting it to kind of go down that route. It was really fascinating. Um, oh. And we, um, unlike Santa, who does his work in one night and then takes the rest of the year off. We're not taking the rest of the year off, are we? We, we are aren't taking the rest of the year off. No. We are going to be back on New Year's Day with a new episode and we're going to do something a little bit similar to this. We're going to discuss some stories of uh, of New Year's Day or the way it's shaping up at the moment 
might be more stories from New Year's Eve. So we'll be almost covering them like a hangover. Ooh, that's quite good. A, a podcast you can listen to while you're nursing a hangover. Yeah, exactly. And go, oh, you know, if I thought I did some weird stuff last night, it's going to make you feel better. That's true. That's true. Well, um, I do wish everyone who's listening, um, I hope you had a great Christmas and, uh, yeah, come back and visit us on New Year's Day. We'll be there. Excellent. We'll see you next time on the Quantum Mechanics. See you then. Take Bye. care. Bye-bye-bye. the quantum mechanics